0: Probably ought to get started. <laughs> the banky baby.
1: Aww. This guy. <laughs> so good. What is her name? If she just woke up. Her name, her name is Sage Edelweiss.
0: All right. You guys saw the banky baby she yeah. you've been praying for and other... <laughs> Okay, well, Nate's going to say goodbye, so he's not going to be with us anymore, but I'll have him open in a word of prayer for us today.
2: Okay, let's pray. (laughs) Father God, we thank you for this day. Uh, Thank you for this beautiful day that you have given us, for the opportunity that we have to worship you and to know you through your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that indwells us and empowers us to live lives that are pleasing to you. We pray that we would um, walk by the Spirit, that we would yield to uh, His guidance and direction, that we would be faithful to the callings that you have called us to, um, help us to flee from sin and pursue righteousness. And God, we pray that you would help us to love you and to love our neighbors and And we just thank you for this opportunity to study your word, that you would uh, help our minds and our hearts to be receptive to what you have to teach today, and that you would speak through Ray um, as your vessel, that what he says would be um, what you want communicated this day, and that we would uh, receive that willingly. Father, we rejoice with the Bankies over the birth of Sage Edelweiss, and we pray I uh, just praise you that she was born safely, and we pray that um, she would uh, grow up and uh, come to faith and believe in your son for eternal life, and that you would watch over her and protect her as she is growing up, and that um, she would desire to, to know you and grow in faith and love and, and walk obedient to you in her life, and that you would give the Bankies wisdom um, as parents, and uh, William's wisdom as grandparents, and I uh, just thank you for this day and this chance to, to be here, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, we also pray for safe journeys for the
0: Hertzers that they work out all the logistics with their baseball team, almost, that uh, all the details would be worked out in your plan, your sovereign plan. Lots of things can go wrong, so we just commit them to you and ask that you get them home safely and bless the rest of their time here and uh, the other places they will will be meeting, and we desire to send them off with your blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thanks. Thank you. All righty, let's get into the book of Romans. Romans chapter 14. So if you haven't turned there already, that's where we'll focus And I've given you quite a introduction to it, so we'll get into the verses, and we should be able to move through them somewhat quickly. I'd like to look at another passage. We might put a little bookmark in 1 Corinthians 8. I want to look at that chapter, because it parallels what we're looking at here, different context, different audience, same issue, same Mm -hmm. problem. So there's some parallels that we can look at. So, Romans chapter 14, as I will introduce in a moment here, written to believers, and obviously I think last time I mentioned that this perhaps may have been one of the problems that Paul is addressing at the Church of Rome. I mentioned that there's really no problems in the book of Romans, and this one, if it's such a problem... Uh, This is the only thing that any hint of any issue that was in the church at Rome, unlike some of the other letters that Paul writes. He writes a letter to the Galatians. They were having a problem with Judaizers. Obviously, I mentioned last time the Corinthians had problem after problem after problem that Paul addresses. The Thessalonians had some confusion over some doctrinal issues. The Colossians had some other issues as well. So Paul addresses these in all of these letters. But the Book of Romans didn't seem to have any, well, maybe that Paul is not aware of all the details. He was planning on visiting and had not made it yet. But if there was a problem, it may have been that issue that we are looking at in chapters 14 and 15. And I've given you a long... Uh, introduction to the passage we're looking at to give the context two major divisions provision of god's righteousness vindication of god's righteousness we're looking at the application of god's righteousness chapter 12 through the middle of chapter 15 so we're in that last portion here and there are several parts to it how do you apply the principles that paul has been developing throughout the book of romans and he starts, obviously, with the most important relationship with God himself. And just a little thumbnail sketch of what Christianity should look like or what our life should look like in that relationship. And he sums it up as a living sacrifice. And then the church, how what, what does it look like to be a believer in the body of Christ? He deals with two issues there. We just completed recently... What does Christianity look like lived out in society, chapter 13? And Now he's dealing with the special issue of Christian liberty, chapter 14, 15, through the middle of chapter 15. So in our outline here, application to Christian liberty, the receiving or the accepting of different convictions that people may, may have as a result of the background that they come from. We all come from different spiritual backgrounds, pagan backgrounds, religious backgrounds, denominational backgrounds, and sometimes those lingering baggage, you might say, affect our view of several things in terms of what the Bible teaches, and sometimes the liberty of Christ is not as clear to people as you might expect, clearer to some and not so clear to others. So he's dealing with this issue of relationships and accepting where people are just where they're at. People are in different places at different parts of their Christian growth. So the receiving of Christian brothers, this is kind of the underlying idea. Accepting is the word that Paul uses. I use the word reception. I like to alliterate, so I've got everything on R's there. Reception of different differing convictions. 14.1. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith. We defined all of these, so I'll give you a quick review, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. So, accept the one who is weak in faith, and we tried to define who Paul is talking about when he talks about weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinion. So, he starts off addressing the stronger believer, he might say his attitude towards those that are not at the same place that he may be. And I mentioned, I'm not going to go over it, but he's not dealing with those things that are evil. The Bible is clear. There are certain absolutes. There are certain things that we are prohibited from doing and are clear sin. He's dealing with issues that are questionable, and they're only sin depending on whether or not on a personal basis God has developed a conviction, and you're violating that conviction. But other than that, we're not dealing with sinful issues. And Paul doesn't even take a stand. He he hints at where he's at, but he doesn't uh, condemn the attitude of these weak believers. In fact, he says we need to accept them. So he starts off directing his uh, discussion to the stronger believer. In fact, on your outline sheet, I don't know if any of you... This time you copied yours, Connie. I've tried to outline the focus in the midst of the outline. So as you look at the outline at the very beginning, verse 1 there, the strong are exhorted, so he exhorts them. In verse 2, he's dealing with both, and he identifies what he's talking about in verse 2. We looked at it last time. I'll review it. And in verse 3, he's also dealing with both, but he's exhorting both along certain lines. Verse four, he warns the weak. And when we get to that point, I'll show that relationship. And verse five, uh, both are identified again, but in relationship to a related issue. The first issue that he raises is the eating of certain foods. But there was also an issue of observing certain days. So he deals with that in verse five. And then six through nine, he deals with both and gives them some enlightening or teaching, you might say, in order to encourage this attitude of acceptance. So verse one gets us into the passage. And then a quick review of the issue. The issue is an issue of conscience. It's not an issue of maturity, immaturity. It's not an issue of sin and/or obedience or lack of obedience. The issue are dealing with conscience and certain convictions that we develop as we come from different backgrounds, and those backgrounds linger in our life until we begin to grow as believers. So that's what's at issue. And I've defined the weak. Actually, this isn't my definition, but the best definition that I have found, the ones that he's addressing are those who do not fully grasp. Their freedom in Christ. They haven't understood the freedom that they have in Christ. So we spent, oh, I don't know, 30 minutes talking about Christian freedom when we began the introduction to this whole passage, so that we have an understanding of the major issue at stake in uh, these passages that we're looking at. Therefore, the strong are those that are further along in their understanding. In other words, the strong understand or grasp their freedom, and they have freedom. In other words, they are free to eat whatever they feel is put before them. They, they don't have any problem of conscience eating. For example, if you were Jewish, a Jew that comes from that background would have a problem eating pork and or seafood, some seafood in terms of uh, crab and shrimp and that sort of thing, shellfish they would have a problem with that because it is prohibited by the law. So now these Jews that have become believers, because of that ingrained background of avoiding anything that's not kosher, now they have a little bit of a problem eating meat that would have been prohibited under Leviticus chapter 11, for example. So their conscience may bother them, And they don't have the full grasping of realizing that Christ has made all foods clean. There's no unclean foods. But this lingering background can plague all of us, and all of us come from these different backgrounds as well. So the strong are the ones that know how to handle their freedom. And in this context, he's giving some guidance to them as well. In other words, we need to take into account. And in fact, later on, as we get into some of the passages, we're going to see that we may choose to limit the freedom that we do in fact have for the benefit of those that may not be in the same place that we are. And that's an act of love. And it's not going back necessarily to legalism. It's a matter of loving those that are not in the same place that we are. And there's lots of examples in the first century. I gave you some of them And I gave you some from uh, the culture in which we live in as well. So those are the strong. The tendency that Paul is addressing in these passages, twofold, the weak tend to judge those that have the freedom. In other words, they can eat meat that uh, is even offered to idols, for example. We're going to see that in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And those that come from that background and their conscience bothers them They think, or in their thinking, how can they eat that meat? How can they eat pork? I mean, isn't it a sin? Isn't it a violation of the Mosaic law? Isn't it something that God has prohibited? They must be in sin, so there's a tendency to to judge them and to condemn them even. The tendency of the strong is to say, oh, you know, I'm free. I can do as I please in these areas of questionable things. I'm aware that God has declared all foods free so I can freely eat. And the tendency is to be proud of one's spiritual state and growth and even uh, despise those that are weak that are bugging them and saying you shouldn't be eating that. So that's kind of the tendency that Paul is going to address here. And the need, we looked at the need in verse one, is the accepting of one another. The strong need to accept the weak and the weak need to Accept the strong. And we've looked at these major terms. The word accept, proslambano, is not just to accept in a casual way. In fact, it's a very strong word. It's a compound word in the Greek text. It actually has the idea of accepting by embracing or bringing somebody in. So it's one step just accepting and saying, oh, just stay away from me. I'll accept it, but don't bother me. It's more, I accept you and love you and bring you in. In other words, bringing them into the fellowship, not rejecting them, bringing them in. So that's the idea of the word accept. The weak, uh, we briefly looked at the word that is used there. It's used in a literal sense. It's used in a more spiritual sense in this context. We looked at the word passing judgment, diacresis last time. Uh, That's also in verse 1. And judging their ideas or their opinions, that's also in verse 1, we looked at that word. So now, beginning in verse 2, we'll pick up where we left off. So one person has faith, and it's interesting that he uses this word, because when we think of faith, we think of at least two areas of faith. We, We generally think of faith at the moment of salvation. He's not talking about that. It's not the faith that he's talking about. The issue is not salvation in this passage. He's addressing believers. Now, when he's addressing believers, the word faith oftentimes is believing what God has said in his word. And that's a very common way that the word is used. But in this context, it's used in a slightly different way. And we might even define it and put it on our list here. It's the same Greek word, pistoulo. The word that is commonly used very frequent in both Old Testament and New Testament is too old in the New Testament. And generally, it has the idea of to believe, whether it's believing in Christ for the very first time and receiving salvation, trusting in what he has done on the cross. That's the basic idea. So that's the meaning of it in general. Or believing what God has revealed in his word. The word pistool can be used in that context. In this context, he's probably using it in a more general sense of having confidence. In other words, those that have a belief that it's okay to do, doing certain things. And that belief gives them confidence that they have the freedom to eat pork, for example, or to eat whatever. Does that make sense? Kind of a general way. Or they have the, confidence or the assurance that it's okay to not necessarily have to observe the feast days of the Jewish calendar and or the Sabbath, for example. If you came from a Jewish background, you would have a tendency of looking at the Sabbath in a very special way. And in the New Testament, we see that uh, there are no special days. In fact, that's part of the teaching that we have here, is the Sabbath is like any other day. We're not under the law to observe the Sabbath. And by the way, when we get to verse 5, Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath, okay? So we don't attach all of the Jewish aspects of the Saturday Sabbath to Sunday. In fact, we have freedom in that area because Paul, basically, we're going to look at another passage, says all days are alike. In other words, there's no distinction in days in terms of our relationship to God. So it's not a sin, for example, to work on a Sunday and or a Saturday as well. Does that make sense? So to having confidence or assurance, I think that's the way he's using the word, the person, one person has faith that he may eat all things. He has this confidence, this assurance, this trust that it's okay. And he has the freedom to eat whatever he so pleases. But he who is weak, because he doesn't have that same freedom, says, well, I'm not going to take a chance. Uh, That meat might have been offered to idols, and I don't want to be contaminated. I don't want to be sinful. I don't want to have a problem here with eating this meat. So I'm going to just stay away from all meats and just eat vegetables. And apparently that was the situation in the first century. But the one person has faith to eat all. Another one has faith. See, it's not saving faith. It's not the Christian life walk of faith. It's a confidence and assurance to be able. One only has faith that he can just eat vegetables. And anything else he feels is prohibited. At least that's the conviction. And just to remind you, there was a Jewish problem. And Jesus addressed the Jewish problem. Notice in Mark 7. Would somebody care to read that? Who's got it? Connie's got it. And who's looking up First Timothy? Let's look up First Timothy as well. Dave's got First Timothy. Connie wanted to read Mark 7. And notice, kind of as a side note, as a parenthetical statement, the, the end of uh, verse 19. But read 18 and 19. So
1: he said are you thus without understanding? We not perceive that whatever enters a man outside cannot differ because it does not enter his heart but his stomach and is
0: eliminated purifying all food. So in other words, food doesn't defile. And when he the little statement, thus he purified all foods, that's for the benefit of a Jewish audience to realize like uh, Peter, in Acts chapter 10, remember Peter could not eat the food that God commanded him to eat because of his background? And he says, no, I've never eaten that unclean food. And God tells him three times to eat because he has cleansed all food. David, 1 Timothy
3: 4, Providing verses 3 through 5. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God created to received and thanksgiving of them and know the truth, for every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused. It's received with thanksgiving, but are sanctified by the word of God and prayer.
0: Sanctified. In other words, it's just as set apart, pork is just as set apart as any food that is kosher. The seafood that was prohibited is set apart. If you give thanks to the Lord, it's just as set apart as any other food. And it's cl- just as clean. It's no longer prohibited because there no, we're no longer under the law because Christ basically has fulfilled those aspects of the law that pertain to all of these issues. And Christ declared all foods clean. So that's the Jewish problem in terms of eating. Now, let's take a look at uh, 1 Corinthians 8, and if you all want to turn to that, I'd like to go through that passage very quickly. And this was a Gentile problem with eating certain foods, certain meats. The Gentiles also had a similar problem, but it wasn't in terms of the Mosaic Law. Some of these Gentiles came from a pagan, and you might even say religious background, and from that background, they would visit a temple. They were worshiping false gods. And in their worship of these false gods, part of the worship was to bring foods and offer them to idols. In other words, sacrifice them in a religious sense, giving them over to idols. So now some of these Gentiles are becoming believers. And now in Christ, They're thinking, well, I want to be careful because uh I don't want to eat those foods that were offered to idols. I might be contaminated by those idols if it's been offered to idols. So Paul addresses that to a Gentile audience at Corinth, and notice what he says, and much of what he says is very parallel that we have in chapters 14 and 15. For the benefit of those on Zoom, let me read. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know. And we all have knowledge. Now, he may even be addressing those that have uh, more knowledge than others, and knowledge puffs up. So he says, uh, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. And that's the, the focus here. So don't let your knowledge and your freedom overshadow your relationship to those that don't have the same knowledge. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. So he's addressing this issue of pride and knowledge. And then he gets into it in verse four. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols. This is the issue, cultural issue, problem of the day. We know, Paul includes himself, probably other disciples, other believers. And it's interesting here. We know that there is no such as an idol in the world. In other words, there are no gods. Notice what he says to say, "There there is no God but one. There's only the one true God of the Bible. So there's no such thing actually of real gods. So all these gods that unbelievers worship, false deities, they actually don't even exist. They're dead. They don't exist. Now, in our minds, we create the idea of their reality, and we think that there's a reality behind them, but in fact, Paul is saying they don't even exist. And if they don't exist, then they can't affect you. Now, he's not denying that there aren't demonic forces, and he's not denying that there are ideas that can influence your thinking and have an effect on your spirituality. He's going to go on. For even if there are so-called gods, in other words, gods of your imagination, gods of your creation, temples that you build to these gods, if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, in other words, even demonic spirits in the heavens, as indeed there are many of these so-called gods. They're not real, But they're so real in our thinking that they have an impact and can, in fact, do damage. And demonic forces can use those ideas to do damage to us as well. Indeed, there are many gods and many lords. Now, they're creations in our imaginations influenced by demonic spirits. Verse 6, yet for us, there is but one God, the Father from whom are all things, and we exist for him One Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. So there's only one true God. There's only one God in reality. All others are false ideas or demonic ideas, demonic influences. Therefore, however, not all men have this knowledge, especially those that have come from that background and have been Damaged as a result of their involvement with idolatry. Now, he's not denying the existence of idolatry. It does exist. There's idolatry today. Idols that we create. All right? Not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed, in other words, their background, the baggage that they come to the Christian walk, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol. And their conscience, here's the word weak again, their conscience being weak is defiled. So now they have a guilty conscience. Now it's a false guilt, but it's guilt all the same. And that false guilt can have an impact on your walk and break your fellowship with God. Okay? So it's an issue of conscience here. Now he doesn't use the word conscience in Romans, but he think, I think he's dealing with the same idea. Then it goes on, but food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. In other words, it doesn't matter. You can eat whatever you want. Now, I think there's instruction that we do all things in moderation, you know, but in terms of just having a meal, it doesn't matter what you eat. In fact, Jesus says it's not what goes into the body that defiles, it's what comes out of the heart, the evil that comes out of the heart. Verse nine, but take care lest this liberty, there's liberty. Take care lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. In other words, the weak are seeing you eat this meat, and they're thinking, how can they, how can they do that? That, that might have been sacrificed to idols. That doesn't seem right. And it bothers their conscience, and as a result, they have a different view of you. In other words, you're not as spiritual as I thought. And it can become a stumbling block. Verse 10. If someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? So now he says, well, it's okay for him. Maybe I can eat it, but now it's going to bother me because, because of my background and I don't have that freedom yet. So verse 10. Will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened, strengthened, in other words, encouraged to eat things, sacrifice idols, verse 11. For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. And by the way, I had this on slides and different principles here. Verses 1 through 3, being careful with incomplete knowledge. You may have knowledge, but Paul is reprimanding him. Your knowledge is always incomplete, verses 1 through 3. Verse 4 through 6, there's only one real God, the God of the Bible. There are many false gods. There are many idols. There are many false ideas. Your past life can influence your conscience. That's verse 7, verses 8 through 9. Liberty requires responsibility. In other words, you need to take responsibility for the liberty that you have. And you need to limit it on some occasions if it's going to have an effect on a weaker brother. And then verses 10 through 12, the potential of damage to that weak brother. So verse 11, for through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. You can damage a, a fellow believer. The brother for whose sake Christ died. And thus by sinning against the brethren, not that the very eating is the sinning, it's the damaging of the conscience that is the sin here. And the disregard for the fellow believer. So sinning and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. And then verse 13. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again that I might not cause my brother to stumble. So that gives you kind of a parallel passage in a Gentile context relating to foods uh, offered to idols.
3: I've just heard it said regarding
0: that if cannot forego that freedom we have certain Christ, we are not really free. we're not really free. That's good. Good point. If we cannot forsake our liberty for the benefit of those around us, we're not really free. Well does
1: that have to chew out of it
0: to do it? Not necessarily. I, I think sensitivity is called for. In other words, if you are aware of other believers that may be offended by certain things, then we self-limit ourselves. But if it becomes evident because somebody has a problem with it, then we can back off. Uh, There's a balance. We'll talk about a balance later on as we get further into the passage. So some have faith to eat all things. Back to the issue of meats. And uh, some, even from the Gentile background, and certainly from the Jewish background, they have problems with certain things as well. And to just be totally safe, they're vegetarian. And apparently that was the situation in the first century. Maybe not so much a problem today, but today we have other issues as well. So verse 3, the one who eats, he's going to exhort them. Uh, he identified them in verse 2. And the exhortation, the one who eats is not to regard with contempt, because that's our temptation. The one who eats and has freedom, not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. So we're sensitive to those around us. And just out of interest here, regard with contempt, the Greek word, echothenato, to look down. And in some contexts, even has the idea of despising. Looking down and despising. And the one who does not eat, in other words, the one that has a background that, uh, uh, limits his freedom is not to judge. That's the tendency of those is to say, how could you, how could you eat that? Isn't that sin? Aren't you a sinner now? Mm -hmm. So the tendency is to judge the one who has the freedom to eat. So we have the exhortation here to correct the problem there. Maddie.
1: Um, okay, so it's a judgment. That comes by, too, that, oh, my goodness, how can
0: Christian end to God? Exactly. That person can be saved. That's right. Yeah. That sometimes comes up, exactly. Now, interestingly, notice the word, he uses the word judge there. Mm-hmm. The word judge is the same one that we looked at earlier.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Crino. To judge, and in some context, even to condemn sometimes used in a strong sense. And the encouragement, and we have the first reason why we are not to look with contempt and the reason why the uh, weak uh, brother is not to judge, for God has accepted him. And on your outline sheet, the reason I give there is God has received them into his kingdom, into his eternal life. And I think what's in view here is God has saved them. He died when they were sinners. So he has accepted them just where they're at. And since God has accepted them, who are we to not only uh, look at them with contempt, but also to judge them. Now we have another reason in verse 4, God is going to sustain them. He's going to sustain both the strong and the weak. Who are you to judge? Now, he's kind of carrying on, and I think he's addressing here the weak believer. You as a weak believer, who are you to judge the servant of another? And he's going to use an analogy here. In the first century, there were masters and there were slaves. And a master took care of his slaves. And he would reprimand them if they were not doing what they needed to do. He would also take care of them but he was the owner, if you will. And in that culture, slavery was not as evil. It depended on on the master. You could have a very good master and you had a very good situation if you were a slave. So he's using the imagery here, the servant of another. In other words, we are servants of Christ. All of us are servants of Christ. He's the master. He's the benevolent master, the good master that not only cares for us, but does what's best for us. And then he says, to his own master, he stands or falls. In other words, you can't go into another family and enter a household and you have a house slave. In fact, the word that is used here is for typically a house slave that would do uh, domestic service acts. And uh, the master would call the servant and ask, well, you can serve the food now, he comes in. You can't come in and say, oh, you put the fork on the wrong side of the plate here. That's the job of the master. Or you can't say, well, uh, uh, I don't like the way you look. Can you uh, get me another servant? You can't. I mean, that's discourteous. That's the whole idea here. You can't deal with somebody else's servant. So the point he's making is we are all servants of Christ and it's Christ who's going to reprimand somebody for eating something that he should not eat, if in fact that's the case. So to his own master, he stands or falls, and he will stand. Why will he stand? For the Lord is able to make him stand. In other words, the Lord is in the process of sanctifying all of us, working in all of us, knowing exactly what we need individually. We have no place in particularly these areas, these questionable areas, to come and reprimand Christ's servants. Let Christ do it. If you have an issue, then uh, you take it to the master. You take it to the Lord and let the Lord deal with it. The Lord is going to sanctify him. The Lord is going to make him stand. Jeff?
4: He is a military analogy. You're not in my chain of command.
0: That's right. I'm
4: not in your chain
0: of command. That's right. That's the chain of command. Christ is the chain of command. He's the commander. Yep. You can't We're all corporals. You can't
4: <laughs> that's, that's right. You're not the boss of <laughs> That's
0: right. So the principle here is uh, it's the Lord that sustains. It's the Lord that, in fact, is going to sanctify. And it's the Lord that's going to correct if there's needing any correction. Maddie. So there I
1: hope,
0: that
1: to Actually, take that of the
0: absolutes
3: and
1: now for it really Argumentation here justify taking something that has in the past viewed as a moral absolute income okay. and making it an area of preference rather than an area okay. of morality. Okay. Let's sexuality. see. Uh, with progressive Christianity sexuality
4: Oh, example, okay, so your idea
0: of moral absolute would be they're taking things that are clear biblical instructions yes, and then aspects. turning
4: them right. into areas of all unjust For you, uh,
0: Zumbies, <coughs> what, what Maddie is raising is today in our culture, and mm-hmm. she used the example of homosexuality, some believers even are taking what the Bible is talking about in terms of moral issues the Bible raises, and making them questionable, okay, and or preferences, and using this passage as justification for it. Yeah, and that's a problem. David?
3: Some of the progressive teachers of Christianity see that there are no absolutes. Yes,
0: and David is pointing Your out... The version of truth is different than my version, right. which is
3: modern society.
0: David's pointing out a very common thing that is growing in our culture called, uh, what's it called? Uh, well, relativism, but, uh, there's another, uh, can't think of the word on it. Uh, critical theory. Critical theory? <laughs> Just as bad. <laughs> Just as bad. <laughs>
4: it's also sometimes called postmodernism. Postmodernism is the word the I'm looking at.
0: Yeah. Where some people <laughs> say, you have a different truth than I have and my truth is not your truth. Yep. A lot of issues today that this passage applies to. Okay, the next passage, and we'll just get into it, and this will be a good place to stop. We won't complete this. We'll continue next week. But there's another reason why we need to be careful with one another and be accepting of one another in these questionable areas, in these areas where background or baggage are involved, where Christian liberty is involved. God is sovereign. So he can deal with these issues as individuals have need. So he's going to go into verse 5 through 9, emphasizing the lordship or the sovereignty of God. So in verse 5, one person, and he introduces a, another issue, but these are similar issues where it's eating certain foods. Or observing certain days, both of these were an issue in the first century. So, in verse five, one person. So he's dealing with things that were very common in the church at Rome or the churches at Rome. One person regards one day above another, and more than likely, he has more of a Jewish person in mind. But the Gentiles also observe certain days, and they had some days. Some of them. Uh, had lucky days and unlucky days and other days related to other gods as well. So one person regards one day above Mm -hmm. another. So in Romans, Paul is probably more general, dealing with both Jew and Gentile. All right. And with the uh, Jewish audience, it would be Sabbaths and feast days. So one person regards one day over another. Another regards every day alike. In other words, uh, one day is not any more special in another day. And by the way, Sunday was the first day of the week in the first century. That was a work day. So the church worshiped in commemoration and remembering the resurrection. The early church did not make Sunday the Christian Sabbath. Okay, they went to work. In fact, they had to worship, especially if they were a slave or a servant, they had to worship either before or after, after work. But they worshiped on a, on the first day because that's the day that Christ rose from the dead. And they commemorated it. And there's evidence in the New Testament that this became a, a pattern and a practice. But it was not a practice like the Jewish Sabbath. All right. So another regards every day alike. Notice the word regards used two times here. That's the New American Standard. The word regard, interestingly, is the same word that we've been looking throughout this passage. It's already been used a couple of times, credo. And what, what is credo? Judge. So notice words in their context are used in different ways. We do this ourselves. Esteem. Esteem yeah. In other words... Consider, regard, esteem, come to the conclusion, evaluate. evaluate would be another way of looking at it. One person evaluates one day above another, another evaluates every day alike. So we've already seen words for judgment, diacrisis, we saw that in verse 1, passing judgment, kind of a compound word. We saw in verses 3 through 4, the word judge, kreno. And now in verse uh, 5, we have regard, and we have krino again two times. Same word, but it's used in a slightly different way. This is how language works. We do this all the time ourselves. We don't even think about it. Jeff? Is it semantic? Yeah. In other words, words have what Jeff calls a semantic range or a range of meaning. And here we have an example of the same word used in different ways, different senses. It's very common in scripture. So you need to be careful with understanding words in their context. So judging can be translated regard or esteem or consider. Let's look up a couple of passages relating to days. Let's look up the first one and uh, we'll pick up here next time. Uh, Just because we're talking about days now. And now we need a clear biblical perspective on days. We looked at foods and we saw that Christ declared all foods clean. Now, what's the situation with certain days, particularly Sabbaths, particularly Jewish feast days? Let's go ahead and do that. We we have a little bit of time here. Colossians two, who wants to read that one? Denise, you want to read that one loudly? And who wants to do Galatians? And that's basically where we'll end today. Laurel, Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Go ahead, Denise.
1: Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is come, but the substance belongs to Christ.
0: Okay, so in the church age... We're not under the Jewish law where God specified and commanded, in fact, one of the Ten Commandments, the observance of the Sabbath, but also other feast days, new moons, other feasts, other Jewish days that were set apart. We're not under a Jewish system anymore. We are not under the Mosaic Covenant, the Church Age, that was fulfilled in Christ. That is Jewish. That is for the nation of Israel, not for the body of Christ. And that pertains to Jewish people that become Christians. And that's where the problem lies. Another passage is Galatians 4 8 through 10. Laurel, you want to read that one? However,
1: at that time, do not know God. Or slaves to nature are no gods. So but now that you to God or rather to God. how is her back
0: against elemental desire to play to all you? you observe days and months okay so you observe days months in other words looking at them differently and uh, adjusting some of your attitudes in terms of your view of these days so essentially the new testament is saying there are no real special days In fact, every day is a day to worship the Lord. Every day is a day to serve the Lord. Some of us have set aside certain days. Sunday I worship the Lord and the rest of the week I live like the rest of the world. That's not biblical, right? I don't want to get into the whole area of tithing, but tithing is one of those areas that is part of the law as well. So there's a lot of Jewish things, a lot of legal things in terms of the law that Christ has set us free. Praise the Lord. And Galatians says, don't go back to those things. Don't go back to those things. So we have tremendous freedom in Christ. But in this context of Romans uh, 14, we need to not only be sensitive to one another, but recognize that my background may influence me today and hinder my freedom. And my freedom can be imposed on others and hinder them and or uh, my lack of freedom as well, and we need to be sensitive to one another. So why don't we stop there and... Uh, uh, the a very of...
5: quick question. Go ahead, Jim. Uh, was the Galatians passage actually addressed uh, to to the Gentiles?
0: Primarily Gentiles. Now, there were some yeah. Jews at Colossae, but uh, primarily Gentiles. So that's a Gentile. Issue of days, special days.
5: Well, the reason I asked the question is because uh, it said you uh, are we slaves to those which by nature are no gods. Yep. That's Gentile.
0: Yep. And they set aside days to their gods as well. In other okay. words, a corrupted pattern of the Gentile world. Yep. Okay. And the last part of verse 5, each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. In other words individual convictions fully convinced in his own mind if you want the Greek word and a couple of other passages relating to that word to be fully convinced these are as we grow we de- develop these convictions but our convictions should not be imposed on others and we need to take into account the convictions of particularly those that are weaker believers Well, why don't we stop in verse 5, and we'll pick up there. And next week, hopefully, we'll get through verse 12. Any comments before we move into a time of prayer? Sandy? So the stronger believe they could
1: eat meat, who never could do it because they didn't know
0: Not necessarily, but uh, they had to evaluate a situation and see who's around them. And if they were not sure, maybe they might abstain. But but in reality, they have freedom. Yeah, we limit our freedom only on the basis of the effect that it might have on someone else. Bill. More obvious
3: exactly if I, I have not problem with a
0: Yes. Not get drunk. Yes.
3: I mean, that's my personal opinion. Yes. My yes.
0: But if I have a friend who I know, I'm recovering
3: the holiday, Yes. I'm going to say at that time,
5: not
0: Right. Yeah, Bill raised the issue that is probably more common in our culture is drinking alcoholic beverages. And it's a big deal in some circles, legalistic circles particularly. But uh, you could make a case that Paul, not uh, Bill didn't say this, but uh, Paul encourages Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach. And as believers, some believers have the freedom to drink alcoholic beverages. Bill pointed out, not to excess, in other words, not to drunkenness, the Bible prohibits that, but the freedom to take alcoholic beverages, but we limit it in a context, Bill says, and we would all agree, in a context where maybe you're having dinner with a believer that is recovering from alcoholism, and to exercise your freedom there may cause a problem with that that brother that's trying to recover from that background. Yes. Yes
4: that very topic, I think Peter discusses that and suggests that the requirement of absolute abstinence would be a doctrine of
0: demons. Oh, wow. Expand
4: that. I, I want to hear more on that. What's his words. Where's that again? I think it's probably going to be in Second Peter he talks about requiring people to abstain from foods and requiring people to abstain from marriage. Oh, okay. And he thinks all of these things are designed to be taken and accepted. He actually calls those doctrines the doctrines of demons. Passage in Second Peter.
0: Okay. Yes, sir, Jim.
5: Uh, well, also, you know, t- uh, one other aspect I think is taking into account the fact that the very first miracle Jesus performed uh, in, in John was the one that heard, you know, involved the wedding, went on several days, which I think would suggest that... Uh, there was uh, there was some. There's something to be said for the Lord leaving it up to people to
0: be responsible for the decisions they make. Did everybody hear that? Jim is raising the uh, passage where the very first miracle that's recorded in the Gospel of John is Jesus turns water into wine, and every indication was that uh, it was very good wine, very good wine. <laughs>
5: And the but the important point is that he left it up to people. I mean, he didn't say anything about it, so I, I think you could might deduct from that, that yeah, the, it was the,
0: the implication was people, is the individual's
5: that he, responsibility.
0: The implication is that in doing this he also left it to the individual to take personal responsibility. Okay. Uh, let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Well let's do it. And if those of you on the Zoom want to pray, just start and I'll uh have everybody listen to your prayer.
1: Father, I want to pray for Rupan and as they raise these and as they travel around just mm-hmm. wisdom with and, and that you'll help them be able to to keep up with child and, mm-hmm. and their needs. Just bless
4: them as they raise mm-hmm. Jesus' name.
1: And Lord, I pray for uh, Alicia, we thank you that things have been going better for her, uh, financially, but, uh, now she's very concerned about her brother and we don't know much about him, but I don't believe he's a Christian. So, Lord, I pray that for the rest of her family would also become Christians and that you would save Geraldo from, um, any worse Effects of this disease and that he might get well and be able to go back to work. Uh, since he's only in his probably late thirties, this is kind of unusual, um, for him, to, for someone that age to be that sick or even to get COVID. So, Lord, we just pray for him and any others that we know among family and friends that you will help them to, um, get well soon and give wisdom to the doctors.
0: Amen. Well, just a couple of I don't know if you call them announcements or just a couple of notes. I got a text this morning, I don't remember, about 1130 from Phyllis. Those of you that have been praying for her, she's in the U.S. now, in Colorado. She'll be here a while. She's still working out the details. Well, I think her daughter's working out the details for those orphans that are supposed to be transferred. So you can keep praying for that. And a woman that has been very important in her life. She considers her her second mother. Uh, she was there when she was, before she was born, basically, she was involved in her parents' lives at the church that they were involved in in Taos. And that's where I know Phyllis from. And uh, she died this morning, was the, uh, the text that I got from her. Barbie? at 102 Wow. And she was very important, not only in that church. She was kind of like one of the founding fathers or mothers, I guess,
5: mm-hmm.
0: of the uh, brethren, little brethren church up there that uh, Phyllis's dad was the pastor. So she's very close to her. And uh, obviously losing somebody that close, she's got mixed emotions because she was certainly a believer. And another little note lana i don't know if you just saw lana good friend of mine i've known her how long have we known lana over over a decade i guess
1: uh but, seven
0: eight uh, nine ten years ten. anyway she i mentioned in an email from ukraine and i'll just mention again she, she wanted to update you on that camp that you all prayed for And I know of one of you that actually sent money. I don't know how many of you did to uh, the organization in Ukraine. Uh, Keep in mind in the mission fields, missions like that, they are dependent very highly on donations, much more than people like here in the U.S. Everybody's poor over there, so they don't have a lot of money. In fact, Lana sends almost all the money that she can. Well, all the money she can. And if any of you are interested in helping even more, let me know. And we can just channel money to her. I'd be glad to send it off. And she virtually all the money she gets, she sends to Ukraine to different things like that and individuals primarily that she ministers to. And if you're not concerned about deductions and all that, we can send money directly through Lana to some of the things that she's ministering to down there.